Well, we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 18. I want to, uh, to read from the first part of it and then just highlight for you what's actually in the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Don't follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my law, decrees and laws for the man or the one who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter is a list of, and it, as verse 6 begins, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter begins to unpack who you're not to sleep with. So, verse 7, don't have sexual relations with your mother. Verse 8, with your father's wife. Verse 9, with your sister or your father's daughter, uh, your stepdaughter, or your mother's daughter. Don't have sex with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. Don't have sex with your father's wife. Don't have sex with your father's sister. Don't have sex with your mother's sister, your aunt. I don't know why I said that, but it is your auntie. Um, don't, have, don't dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sex with her. She's your aunt. Your father's brother, that's right. Um, don't have sex with your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. Don't have sex with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Don't have sex with both a woman and her daughter. Don't, verse 18, don't take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sex with her while your wife's living. Don't approach a woman to have sex during the uncleanness of a monthly period. Don't have sex with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Don't give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the Lord, name of your God and the Lord. Don't lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable. Don't have sex with an animal and defile yourself with it. Verse 24. Don't defile yourselves in any of these ways because that's how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited the nations that were before you. Well, <laughs> when I was putting this together in the autumn, it was, you know, and I, I was setting out like what weeks we're going to tackle what. It so happened that this was the week that we decided this would be the passage we'd, ta we'd tackle. And it's kind of intriguing in one sense to me. It's a small thing for me, but it's intriguing that this passage then comes in the same week when this passage actually has been talked about more than it has been for, for many years in, in the wider media because of the gay marriage bill that was uh, passed its first reading on, uh, on Tuesday. And when you listen to people talking about the bill, and again, you know, if you do spend time on websites and blogs and things, 
you will know the vast torrent of comment that has been produced by and provoked by the bill on Tuesday. It brings out the best in people and it brings out the absolute worst in people. And some of those people it brings out the worst in are Christians. Some of them are atheists. But it becomes this sort of battleground. And after you've read some of it, and I have read quite a bit of it this week, just, you know, just following what people have said, sometimes you just read it and you think, to be honest, I just want to get as far away from a move from all these comments as I can, because this is not about the issue anymore, it's just about how do you talk about the issue. And it just makes you feel unclean. But it's interesting to me then, that on this Sunday, there's an opportunity for me to reflect about why sex matters. What have we said so far? Well, in Leviticus, we started by saying that the first chapters of Leviticus wanted to remind you you were a holy people. And it gave you a way of being holy through sacrifice. This idea that in your worship, you bring what you have, and God is pleased with it. We talked about the idea of being priests, people between, between the holy place and the rest of the world. And the way in the New Testament picked that up and called the church the priests, your bridge people between God and the world. Then we, we spent some time looking at, do you remember we looked at the, the food you can eat, the unclean scabs and... Um, birth and menstruation and emission. We talked about how Leviticus sees God as Lord over kitchens, over maternity wards, over hospitals, over bedrooms. And the remarkable work of Jesus when he comes and he gets involved with people who have been destroyed in some of those, some of those areas. And then in, in first Sunday, last Sunday, we looked at Day of Atonement and the fact that once a year there was an opportunity to come and go, to be honest, God, we've messed up. We need to get right. From this point of the book onwards, the book changes away from the sort of the more quote-unquote spiritual stuff to the much more earthly stuff. And it's kind of interesting to me that it's, sex is a big deal in this chapter. It lays out to a people who are becoming a people, who's it okay to sleep with and who is it not okay to sleep with? And these are the things that it says, this is not okay. It's not okay to sleep with close family. It's not okay to commit adultery. It's not okay to give your children in sacrifice. It's not okay. They're, they're, what that refers to is there was a practice in Canaan particularly, where they would sacrifice their children to a god called Moloch. And he goes, that's not okay. Your children are more valuable than that. It's not okay to sleep with people of the same sex. And it's not okay, bestiality is not okay. Now, when you start looking at this stuff and you start to say, well, why these five? Well, one of the reasons these five is because these were real options. These were real options for people. 
And when we start to think about, actually, what do we do with sex? What do we say about sex? We have to begin by recognizing that actually, lots of people will have lots of opinions about what you do with it. And it's always been like that. And you can't just shout people down. You've actually got to say, well, actually, this is how we are going to be. So the beginning of the chapter becomes quite important. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. A phrase that reminded the Israelites of the fact that God had redeemed them from Egypt, that God had called them, that God had set them apart, that God wanted to use them for his purpose. It's a phrase that is a short phrase, but it's absolutely full of meaning about what God wants to do with his people. And then they say, don't do as Egypt did, because you've come from Egypt, and you know what they were doing in Egypt. Don't be like them. And you know where you're going. You're going to Canaan, to a new land, a new culture, with new practices. Don't be like them. But you've got to kind of live in between Egypt and Canaan. Between two cultures of the day, where lots of things were permissible, but you've got to live in the middle and say, well, actually, this is what we are going to hold to. They're called to be different. They're called to live in a different way. They're called to be different even as they are the same. And what I mean by that is they don't stop being sexual beings. They still have sex drive. They still are thinking about what do we do with it. They're still thinking about how do you practice it. It's kind of like you're living in between Egypt and Canaan and you are the same because you're human. <laughs> These are not alternative beings, they're human beings like you, created by God. They're the same as you, and you're the same as them. You feel the same. You get frustrated the same. You want to act the same sometimes. But you live in the middle, and you have to be different, because actually I want to use you for something else. So in our society, it's kind of interesting how things have changed when you just reflect on this chapter. Because we as a society, in our Western society, and you've got to remember that in other parts of the world, they might see this differently, but in our Western society, our European society, we still say those three things are wrong. Christian or not Christian, we still say that's actually wrong. But those two things, well, we've kind of changed how we view that as a society. And one of the things that we're having to deal with, and one of the things that happened on Tuesday, was a real recognition that within our lifetime, everything's changed. Everything's changed. The society has changed around us. And what's acceptable has changed around us. And, and Tuesday was just an indication of how it's changing. Now, there's a long way to go with that bill, and and it will be discussed by laws, it'll go back to the commons, they'll have to thrash it out again. But there is no doubt in my mind that actually, as an MP, if you were representing a constituency, most of your constituents would go, well, of course. We've changed. So why have we changed? Well, we changed because 
hedonism rules and love rules. Lots of the argument this week has been, well, actually, it's because we love one another. Partly because it's my life, what's it got to do with anybody else? And partly because it's not hurting anybody else. And I hear all those arguments, and I understand them. But there's one thing that then they often people will go on to say, and I've read it in newspapers, and I've read it on sites, and I've read it, I've heard it on the TV and on the radio in discussion this week. They say, ah, oh, yeah, and they start pulling out that verse from Leviticus and go, huh, see, that's what the Bible says. But, they say, who could possibly live by rules that are around three and a half thousand years old? Why does that make any sense? The other thing that some people might say who know the Bible a bit better, and sometimes what you've got to recognize is that, um, and I say this hopefully with kindness, but sometimes people who are writing articles in papers or doing things on television, when they're writing about the Bible, they don't really know much about the Bible. And they think that we are quite, um, they think that as Christians, we read scripture quite simply or simplistically. Because some of them will go, well, you say, it says in Leviticus, you shouldn't lie with someone of the same sex. But, in the previous chapter, it told you not to eat prawns, but you eat prawns, don't you? And then the next chapter coming, it tells you not to wear clothing made out of two different sorts of material. But you've all got polyester cotton shirts on, so you're not consistent. That's what people say. How can you think about something that's three and a half thousand years old and... You're not consistent. Well, the truth is, the way you deal with all issues is not by trying to find one or two proof texts. A proof text is just where you take one little bit of the Bible and then hang everything on it. That's a really bad way of using the Bible. What you do is you say, well, actually, what's the story of the whole of the Bible? Because it's true. There's some things in the Bible start out looking very definite, and yet we've changed over a period. It does look like in the early part of the Old Testament, particularly, slavery was fine. It does look like in the early part of the Old Testament, having a concubine, or a, we'd call it a mistress, but an upfront mistress, an extended household, was accepted. And some of the heroes of our faith did that. But actually, as scripture goes on, you see a trajectory, you see a path where things change. Where slavery begins to change its nature. And so when Christians came along in the 18th century and said, the way we're treating one another is not right, according to scripture, they were right to do that. And when they were starting to say, well, actually, it's not right. We, we, you need to commit to one person. You can't have concubines or 500 wives. Even if Solomon did do it, it didn't end well. So what you're doing is you're looking at Scripture throughout the whole and saying, well, actually, is there any indication that it's starting to change? One of the interesting things is um, that I think it's easy for the church to give the impression that we're absolutely obsessed with homosexuality. I remember Cliff Richard who, you know, 
<laughs> Cliff Richard sort of is Cliff Richard, and you know, God bless him. But um, you know, whatever you might feel. But I remember him being interviewed once, and uh, they were asking him yet again, yet again, why are you not married? And he 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 was. I mean, he must have been asked that question every day of his life. And he just said to the person who was interviewing, "Why are you obsessed with my sex life? Why are you obsessed with my sex life?" And I thought it was a really good response. Because sometimes in society it can feel like we're a bit always back on the foot and they're wanting to ask. And actually the really interesting thing is when you look at how many times does the Bible actually talk about homosexuality? Five verses. Five times. There's one or two stories that it's involved with, but it's not a comment on it, except it's, it's, it's really in the wider sense. But actually the teaching about it comes in five places. It's kind of like it's not... You know, you, you might imagine for the amount of conversation that happens, it's, it's every other page. It's not. But it's consistent. And consistently, the Bible says it's not what God intended. If you have got a Bible with me, can you turn to Romans 1? Because Romans 1 is actually the place where it talks about it the most. And I want to read from Romans 1 with you. Um, we're going to start at verse 18. Now, what you've got to remember is what Paul's doing with Romans as a letter. Paul is writing a letter to people he's not yet visited. All right, that's really important. So, lots of when Paul's writing his epistles, he's writing about things that they're concerned about. And in Romans, he's not really. He's setting up, this is almost like these are my credentials. This is what I believe about the gospel. This is the big story. So he's not been to Rome yet. And he's setting it up. And what he does, he sets it up from what's going on in the world around us. And from what's going on in, around the world, in the world around us, he's then going to move on to what's the good news of the gospel and then how do we live. That's what Paul does with Romans. So in chapter 1, in verse 18... He's talking about what's going on in the world around us. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God's plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that men are without excuse. Okay, let me just comment quickly. The first thing he says is that the way the world is and the way we are, there's something about the world and about us that says there's got to be more than this. That it cries out for a bigger meaning. And Paul said that meaning is God. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He's saying, although they knew that there should be more than this, what they did is they, instead of worshipping God, humanity, 
not everybody individually, but humanity, what they did was they said, we'll find meaning elsewhere. And we'll create idols and we'll worship them. That seems a long way from us. But you got a traffic center this afternoon and ask people, why are you shopping? And you find out how many people go, well, it just, without being crass, it's almost like Erin. It just makes, me, just makes me happy. It just fills that hole for a moment. I don't need anything. I don't need anything, but I come to this place, the Trafford Centre, which does look like a temple, doesn't it? With colonnades, with saints around the cupola, as you, uh, you know, the dome. It looks, like a, 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 it looks like a temple when you go past the classical um, lions, and it looks like you're coming to worship. So we had this idea of God, and then we exchanged it, and we put something else in its place. That's what Paul says. Verse 24, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a line. They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, the point is this. We had this sense that there's more, but we chose to fill it with something else rather than turn to God. Therefore, God gave us over to do the very things that we wanted to do. The judgment of God is when God says, get on with it. Therefore, Paul says, that's when sexual relations went different than the created order. And what Paul's doing in that one chapter is he's reflecting on Genesis, the creation chapters in Genesis, where relationships were between people who were different. And you came together with your difference and you created something that was new. That's why all the way through the Bible, sex is never just about sex. Rob Bell, who's a, a, some of you know, is a writer and a pastor in America, sometimes controversial, but he's got a brilliant phrase. He says, the Bible teaches us that we're not angels, but we're not animals either. Angels are, you're sexless. Animals are, you can't help it. The Bible says, no, actually, you've been given this drive. But creation narrative says, this is how you're to use it. And Paul writes about what's going on in society as a whole and says, the judgment is, you can do what you want. It's not that homosexuality here 
brings judgment. It's that actually God's let you do what you want. Now, again, this is where Christians, the next move is the important move here. Because this is where Christians become really nasty. Because they read this and go, see! And then they start saying, see, God's bringing judgment. Well, actually, no, the judgment is not because of your actions. The judgment is because of your refusal to acknowledge God. Christians sometimes can appear to be saying, see, and therefore sexual sin, and particularly this week, homosexual sin, is the worst of all. And Paul says, no, you've, got, you've missed my list. What about arrogance? What about envy? What about boasting? What about people who cast off their parents? What about people who are faithless and senseless? What about people who are heartless? Because what Paul is wanting to remind you of, and he'll do this throughout these early chapters, is we all have been marred by sin. The teaching of the New Testament is not one of us has, and let's just talk about our sexual lives, not one of us is absolutely plumb line. All of us have, are flawed. All of us are flawed. Straight or gay, doesn't matter. Romans 1 is not the last chapter, it's the first chapter. And it's the first chapter where Paul will say very quickly in chapter 3, all have sinned. So don't you be getting all self-righteous. Don't you be getting self-righteous. Well, I've not done that. All have sinned. We have sinned. And the gospel came for people like us. People who are screwed up. People who are messed up. And then in chapter 12 is the chapter that says, therefore, in the light of God's mercy, offer your bodies. Learn to maneuver. Learn to navigate in this world where things are not the way you would want. So what do we say? For some of you, it'll be like, I just don't want to think about it. For some of you, it's like, I disagree with what I think you're saying. For some of you, it'll be like, okay. But I think for all of us, you have to work out what you're going to say. So I wanted to land this somewhere. And I wanted to say a number of things. I think it's really intriguing that the Bible talks about actions. It doesn't talk about orientation. It has nothing to say about orientation. Nothing about people. I actually don't think most people choose to be straight or gay. I think it's just the way they are. I don't know if we know really enough about why that happens. I know there's lots of theories, but I don't know if anybody really knows at the end of the day why we are as we are. I just know I never chose to be straight. I just kind of grew into it. And I've got friends who are gay, and they didn't choose to be gay. They just kind of grew into it. But because of our orientation, it doesn't give us the right then just to do what we want with it. I have to say, I think the Bible teaches that homosexual activity is against the created order of the way God meant it to be. I don't think it makes 
people who have attractions for gay folks, bad or evil or sinful, any more so than if I get attracted to someone who's not Maggie. That's a temptation. It doesn't make me sinful, it doesn't make me evil, it doesn't make me bad, but it does make me decide what am I going to do with that. And I have to say, I've been really aware as I've been preparing for this morning, and I've been praying a lot about this morning because this could go horribly wrong. I'm conscious that in this room, there are a lot of you actually who have to work out what you do with your sexual frustration because you're not in the situation you chose. Some of you are single. And some of you are single through choice and some of you are single because it's just the way it is. But it didn't stop you being sexual. But every day you're having to make a decision. How am I going to live with the way I am? What do I do with these feelings? What do I do with this drive? I think the Bible teaches that homosexual activity is against the creative design. I think what the world needs to know is Jesus is amazing. I think I want to argue I don't want to be badged by the rest of the world as being a bigot or hateful. I think Jesus would have stern words to say to Christians who do the equivalent. I know we don't do this so much in the UK, but the equivalent of God hates gays. I think Jesus would have stern words to say to you and me. I think when it's homophobic or discriminatory or when we give people the impression that somehow they're lesser, then I think Jesus would have really strong words to say to us. For it doesn't seem to be the way that Jesus was. I think people want to know, are you a bigger? And maybe sometimes we have to acknowledge, sometimes we are. Sometimes people do stuff and we don't get it. We don't understand it. So how, what do you demonstrate? Maybe we need to demonstrate a love that's more than tolerance, to listen and to understand. So this is where I am this week. Should we support civil rights? I think we should support and pray for our government that they make good bills. I'm not convinced that the bill that was passed on Tuesday is a good bill. Not because of the topic, but actually because of how it was framed. And it would be interesting. I think we ought to pray that the House of Lords, who have more time and more space, and whatever you think about the House of Lords, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, there's actually moments where it's not bad for some people to say, well, actually, we'll have a look at that now. Should we support, though, civil rights? Yes, we should. Do you want to go back to the 1960s when homosexuality was against the law? Did it change human hearts back then? Did it sound like Jesus? We are not in power. And I'm not actually even sure that as the church we're supposed to be in power telling non-Christians what to do. I think we live between Egypt and Canaan. Demonstrating a kingdom. Can gay people be part of this church? Absolutely. 
Because if they can't, neither can you who envy, or you who boast, or you who lose your temper, or you who break relationship. Is it okay to continue with gay practice on an ongoing basis? No, I don't think it is. Any more so than for you that are heterosexual, is it okay to be sleeping around? No, it's not. It's that difficult thing of what do I do with this sex drive? Will we conduct gay marriages? Well, this is kind of like a bit of a joke, really, because we can't conduct straight marriages. <laughs> so it's a bit of a non-question, really. <laughs> We're not allowed to do marriages in this building because this is a Church of England, and I'm not Church of England. So anybody who gets married and wants to actually have a ceremony here has to go and have a civil marriage and then come back and we're blessed. And actually, I, I, I think that's not a bad thing. If we could disestablish the Church of England, though that's more than one sermon is going to do, um, that it wouldn't be a bad thing for, to happen for everybody. But I, I wouldn't, I couldn't bless or conduct. Now, as it happens, Elam wouldn't allow me to, in the same way as the Church of England have said, that's not permissible. But I wouldn't out of conscience. But my final slide is this. How do I walk? How do I walk with people who differ from me? And I've got to tell you, there are people who really love Jesus who disagree fundamentally with what I've just said this morning. And they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not the enemy. They differ, and they differ for good reasons. They have their reasons. I just don't go with them. But how am I going to deal with those people? Forget about the rest of the world for a minute. What about people within the church, your brothers and sisters who disagree with you? How do you walk with them? Well, I want to listen and understand. I may disagree. I, we disagree about lots of things in the church, don't we? But are they the enemy? Or do they see it differently? And do I actually need to have the grace to listen? As well as be firm. I don't want to be tossed about by every wind that just... But I still want to listen. And then there's the second question then. Well, how am I going to live in a world around me? Who, the moment they know I'm a Christian, say, Ah, so what do you think then? How do I express myself? Now, you don't normally get 30 minutes to express yourself uninterrupted, as I have had this morning the pleasure of. You have 20 seconds. What do you say? You need to know how you respond. But this is perhaps the last thing I want to say. We together come and we say we have been affected by sin. There's some of us in the room and you've been damaged because of relationships and you gave yourself and they were broken. Some of you have been damaged because you've been involved in stuff that, that broke other relationships. Some of you have desires that you know if you fulfill them, if you acted out on them, it would be not what God would want for you. We come together as a broken people. 
We don't have much to be self-righteous about. Whatever you believe, we come to the cross with our brokenness. The story of creation, of the fall, of Christ, and of the consummation of the kingdom, when all things will be brought to him, where there will be no more tears, where all things are healed. But lots of us live in the meantime. We live with grace and truth. 